Luke chapter 1. As you're making your way there, let me ask you a question. In all seriousness, what would you do if God asked you to risk your life? What would you do if God asked you to make some sort of radical, overwhelming sacrifice? A sacrifice that would alter your life forever. What if God called you, for instance, to give everything away that you own to Pastor Ted and to uh, go, no, give everything away that you own and to go live in poverty somewhere serving him? Would you be willing to do it? What if God asked you to adopt an AIDS-infected baby from Africa? Would you do it? What if God required of you something that was going to put your life in imminent danger? Go to an ISIS-controlled area. Go somewhere in Iraq to be an ambassador of Christ and put yourself in harm's way. Would you do it? That's the idea of our message today as we continue now in the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing a a series we started last week. We've titled the series, Blessed Assurance. And the title comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where Luke reveals his purpose for writing the book. We saw this last week. He says there that, that... they may know the or that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And that word certainty it literally means stability, it means safety, it means security. The idea being that God's word is true and, and, and that his promises are sure, safe, and secure. Now we see this these promises of God being fulfilled and and the the surety and the safety in him, we see this demonstrated here in Luke chapter 1 and again in Luke chapter 2 with parallel stories of God's faithfulness. Last week we looked at God's fulfillment faithfully of the promise that was given uh, in the Old Testament, specifically in Malachi chapter 4, to send a messenger before the promised Messiah. And so what does God do? Well, last week we saw God answered the prayers of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He gives to them a son, John the Baptist. We find out last week, Elizabeth finds out she's pregnant with a son. She's an old woman. She's shocked by it. And and the angel Gabriel says, listen, your son who is to come, he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and he is going to herald the coming Messiah. Well, today we see a parallel story of God's faithfulness. And his fulfilled promise to send to us a Savior, the Messiah, promised by God through the prophets. And so we pick it up now, verse 26 of chapter 1, and it says, Now in the sixth month, specifically with in view Elizabeth and her pregnancy, so this is speaking, now she's six months along, in the sixth month, the angel, of, the angel Gabriel was sent by God, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And Mary, the literal translation of that name means exalted one. Uh, The name Mary is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Miriam. So that would have been her name in in Hebrew, Miriam, and she shares that name with the sister of Moses. You might uh, recognize that. And so her name means exalted one. Verse 28, "And (coughs) and having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. And so this angel now tells Mary that there are three things that, that she has or is receiving from God. She's highly favored, the Lord is with her, and thirdly, she's blessed. And by the way, these are the three things that all of us have as children of God, as those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the very reason for which uh, the angel would say this to Mary, we the Bible says the same thing of us having received Christ, that we are highly favored, that the Lord is with us and that we are blessed. Verse 29, but when she, Mary, saw him, this angel, she was troubled at his saying and she considered what manner of greeting this was. She's like, 
this heavenly divine being is showing up telling me that I'm blessed and I'm highly favored and that the Lord is with me. She's like, what kind of a greeting is that? She's just kind of overwhelmed by it. Verse 30, then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now, Mary's betrothed here. She's, she's engaged to be married. We'll look at that more in a minute and what that means. But basically, there's another cat in the picture here. There's, there's, there's Joseph. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. And he's, he's like, he knows it ain't his. You know? so, so what happens there is Joseph purposes in his heart that he's going to put her away quietly. See, according to the law, he could have had her killed. But no, he, does, he decides, well, I'm just going to divorce her quietly and, and all. <clears throat> and yet, thankfully, mercifully, God sends an angel to him, and the angel tells Joseph the same thing. Here this, this angel tells Mary, you're going to call his name Jesus. Well, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's gospel, they, he, he prays to Joseph, gives him the same memo. Hey, you're going to, what's happened here is a work of God, and you're going to call his name uh, Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so it's been six months since Gabriel showed up, talked to Mary, or talked to Elizabeth, says, hey, you're, you're going to have you know, John, the, John the Baptist baby, you're going to have a baby, and you're going to name him John, he's going to be the herald of the Messiah. And... Here now, God sends Gabriel out again with another birth announcement of the coming promised Messiah that Isaiah spoke about in that famous uh, scripture that in Isaiah that's quoted often around Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so this is what Gabriel's doing. And listen, we need to understand, Jesus has always been God's plan A. He's always been plan A. Sometimes we think, oh, you know what, God had his plan, Adam and Eve messed it up, and so Jesus was plan B to salvage it. No, that's not the deal. Jesus has always been plan A. Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating the heavens and the earth, creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, says, this is all for you. You're created, sinless perfection. Run it, manage it, knock your socks off, have a great time. But what he does is he puts there in the Garden of Eden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, look, you can have everything, but you can't have that. Now, God knew. He wasn't shocked. He wasn't surprised. He knew that the thing that he told them, the one thing that he told them that they can't have, is just like your two-year-old, that's the one thing they want, right? And he knew that it was going to go down like this. And he knew that everybody who follows after them, insert your name here, would do the same thing, that we would, that we would run <clears throat> to that thing that he says we can't have. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But listen, God, because he's a good God, he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so he sent Jesus Christ to save us. That's, by the way, what the name Jesus means in verse 31. When Gabriel says, you're going to name him Jesus, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And so he, God knew this all the time. Jesus, he would come as, as, as the, the, the love of God manifested in a person and work of Christ who's going to pay the penalty for our sins. And like I said, this is plan A, and it's always been plan A. See, the Apostle Paul said this to the Galatians, Galatians 3.24. He said, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. God gives us his law from the very beginning when he said, look, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you can't have that. That was a law from God. 
And all of his law, the entire Bible, all of his precepts that God has given to us, Paul tells us that that serves to be our tutor to bring us to Christ. That word tutor, it's the Greek word paedagogos. And what it means is it means schoolmaster. Now, I don't know about your school history. Maybe you've got a teacher in your past that tormented you. I have one. She was my third grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Roberts, a name that shall live in infamy in the Leavenworth household. Mrs. Roberts was, was satanic. I'll just tell you that. I grew up in the Catholic school. That's where I went to school. And the nuns had nothing on Mrs. Roberts. She, her job, man, her singular delight, and then this isn't, you know, me looking back, you know, you know how it is. You, you get older, and when you were a kid, you walked to school uphill both ways in the snow, and it's always magnified. I'm not magnifying nothing. I ain't exaggerating nothing. Mrs. Roberts' singular delight was to point out our wrongdoings and to punish us. That's what a paedagogos did. Every child knew you reach a certain age, you go to school, and you get assigned to a paedagogos. You get assigned to a schoolmaster, and they're tough. And Mrs. Roberts, man, she was brutal. We're talking, she wasn't content to hit kids with rulers. She hit kids with yardsticks. I mean, this, this chick was bad news. And so that's the, the point here, and here's what... Paul is saying, he goes, look, God gave his law, not because he's a Mrs. Roberts who delights to punish you. No, he gave you the law to show you that you are stuck on stupid and you need a savior. That's why he gave you the law. He gave you the law because the law is brutal. The law says, hey, what's the wages of sin? You break this law? Death penalty. That's the wages. And he did that so that all of us would realize, I need a savior. Because the moment God gives you a standard and you try, I mean, what, that's what sin means. Sin means to miss the mark. It's, it's an archery term. And if you've ever played darts or shot an arrow, you know you're aiming for the bullseye. But everything in you might want to hit the bullseye. That doesn't mean you're going to hit the bullseye all the time. And that's the nature of sin. That try as you might to hit the bullseye, eventually you're going to miss. And so you're a sinner. You need a savior. That's the whole point. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Plan A. Mark, Jesus said this, Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now listen, God did this because the greatest need of mankind is a Savior. Charles Sell, in his book, Unfinished Business, said this. He said, if our greatest need had been in information... God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. And so God sent us a Savior. Now with that in mind, it makes perfect sense right out the gate as we read of the promise of the coming Messiah that God would send him to a place like Nazareth. Nazareth, chronologically, by the way, this is the first time it's ever mentioned in Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, this is the first time that Nazareth is mentioned in the Bible. And Nazareth was frequented by Roman soldiers, and it was a notoriously immoral place. It was known for drunkenness, it was filled with brothels, and it was a, it was a really corrupt place. And it was despised by the Jews, not just the place, but the people from Nazareth were despised by the Jews because of the wickedness in that city. In fact, you might recall in the Gospels, Philip you know, meets Christ and he goes running to tell Nathanael about the Christ that is from Nazareth. And Nathanael's response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's where that comes from. And so one of the things that I love about this Gospel, and I'm looking forward to as we go through it, is the emphasis on the wonderful inclusiveness of God. Because Luke makes a point to tell us how Jesus loved the poor and how he loved the marginalized and how he loved the outcast. And I love that uh, about this gospel in particular. And right here in the beginning, where does God send Jesus to be born? He sends him to one of the most seedy places in all of Israel. Now, throughout history, when God prepares to do a great work, 
He always prepares a person through whom he will do that work through. Always, always, always. We see God preparing a person uniquely for the work that he's about to do. We, we see this example in Joseph's life. Joseph was prepared in the house of Potiphar and later in prison to be the guy that would lead the nation of, of Egypt where the Israelites would have to run during a time of famine. And because of God's preparation, God divinely, supernaturally, through hardship, that, that Joseph never would have chosen for himself, but that God prescribed, he did this so that he could prepare Joseph to work through him to minister to the nation of Israel. Again, another biblical example would be Moses, prepared in the house of Pharaoh. Now again, God doing a work, this poor kid, he's born, and how do you do? He gets put in a boat and sent off, you know, down the river kind of thing. And so what is God doing? He's preparing him to do a work through him. And the work that he would do would be to lead Israel in the exodus from their bondage in in Egypt. And so whenever God wants to do a work, he prepares a man through whom to do that work. And, And... The sending of Jesus the Messiah is no exception, except for in this case, we see that God prepares a woman. He prepares Mary and through her to bring Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about Mary, people tend to go to extremes, one of two extremes. On the one hand, they either magnify her so much that Jesus takes second place, or they ignore her and they fail to give her the esteem that she deserves. I'll give you an example. As I said, I grew up in the Catholic Church. And, and among other uh, doctrines that the Catholic Church teaches, they teach that Mary is the co-redeemer. And, and, and so the, what they say is that salvation is through both her work and through Jesus's work. And specifically, they say that because Mary assented to and agreed to the birth of Jesus, that that makes our salvation possible. And so she is to be prayed to, and she is to be worshipped as the co-redeemer of mankind. That's not biblical. That is an unbiblical assertion. See, because the Bible makes it very clear that it's Jesus and his work alone that saves us. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, There is one mediator, one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So there's an example of, of one extreme to where she's elevated improperly. Um, now, having said that, listen, there are valuable lessons that we can learn from Mary. We don't have to go to the other extreme to where she's ignored. No, she, the, the, the angel says she's great among women. Like, there's, there's things that, we can exalt her for, not exalting to the point of being equal with God, not exalting to the point of worshiping her, but we can exalt her for the things that she's done, and we can look to her um, for the, the valuable lessons that we can learn from her. And, and one of those, the big lessons that we can learn from Mary is how she cooperated with God in his work of redemption. We continue, look at verse 34. It says, Then Mary said to the angel... How can this be since I do not know a man? Now, you'll recall last week we looked at Zacharias. He gets the news. He doesn't believe. And so the angel's like, okay, you're not going to believe me? Boom, I'm going to take your voice away. You don't get it back till the baby's born. How about that for a sign? You're going to believe me now kind of deal? Now, so Mary asking this question, you might go, well, gosh, she's doubting just like Zacharias. No, and it'll make it clear as we go through that she doesn't doubt. This is, this is sincerely... Just a question. She doesn't doubt that it's true. She just wants to know, how are you going to do this? Because like, I, I, I don't know a man. Uh, I you know, never had sexual relationships. How am I going to give birth to a baby? Verse 35, And the angel answered, and he said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. That is a very unique word. It means to cover with a cloud. And we see biblically... This visible manifestation of the glory of God, the covering with a cloud, we see it in, in several locations. We see it in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when, when the cloud of God's Shekinah glory comes down, and we see this visible manifestation of God. We see it in the New Testament in, on the Mount of, of Transfiguration, 
with the, the cloud of the manifestation of God's glory. And so this is the same thing here. The angel says, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and going to come upon you, and the power of the Holy Spirit of the, of the uh, highest will overshadow you, will cover you with a cloud. You therefore also, or, uh, you therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And this phrase, the Son of God, uh, they would uniquely understand it in this day that what the angel is saying is, look, the kid that you're going to carry in your belly will be equal to God. That's, that's the implication of this phrase, that, that he, he, will, he will be God. And so it's a, it's a very profound thing. And now the angel goes on. This is an incredible truth, right? It's a lot to swallow. And, and Mary's like, okay, you know, I'm believing. But he's going to help her along here in verse 36. He says, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for who, for her who was called barren. Hey, you remember that old woman, your cousin, Elizabeth, like, you know, old lady, wanted a kid, didn't have a kid, she's six months pregnant. This is, this is an amazing thing, and he, he qualifies it, verse 37, he says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And so Gabriel brings this proof to Mary. He says, here's an incredible truth. This is amazing. You're going to be pregnant with God himself. But you know what? To prove it, your cousin Elizabeth's pregnant six months. Old lady. Miraculous, just like you. And so this amazing truth that we read in verse 38, then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord... Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departs from her, right? The angel departed from her. So Mary's response, she says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. That word maidservant, it referred to the lowest servant in the house. And, and this is, is Mary responding to this whole thing. She's like, hey, in the scheme of things, I'm like the lowest servant in God's house. And, and so, behold, that's, that's who I am. And, and it, Mary's attitude here is to be commended as well. It shows this immense depth of Christ-like humility. You know, I, I think about Jesus' parable about the, the two guys that go up to pray. And you've got, you know, the Pharisee who's praying, Oh, Lord, thank you for how awesome I am. I'm not like other men. I do all this stuff. And he says, and then there's this other guy, and, he, and he's just this wretched tax collector, and he just beats his breast and says, Father, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus asks this rhetorical question. He's like, which one of those two do you think went away blessed and, and having their prayers heard by God? The guy with the humble heart and the contrite spirit, you know? And so here, this, Mary's just got this Christ-like humility. When Paul's talking to the Philippians, he, he says, of Jesus, he says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so, commendable behavior on Mary's part speaks to her character. Just behold, I'm the maidservant of the Lord. I'm the lowest servant in the house. Now, understand this, cooperation with God, it's not just for our own benefit. The Bible makes it very clear that there's more to it than that. When we cooperate with God, it's a much bigger implication. It's not just for us. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus is our high priest. And, the, you know, Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our, is our, our mediator. He's the one we pray to. And, and, and he is our high priest. But... The Bible also calls you and me to share in that priesthood. I got several verses to back that up. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says he, um, speaking of Jesus, has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever. Amen. Peter said this. He said, you also as living stones... Speaking of us in the body of Christ, here, us members of this church, he says we're living stones, being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through 
Jesus Christ. He goes on to say a few verses later, you are a chosen generation, <coughs> a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so cooperating with God, it's a lot bigger than us, and it has broad implications, and we are called to be part of the priesthood of all believers. Now, how do we do that? We do it by sharing in Jesus' sufferings. That's how we do it. We do it by, by being willing to say, God, I'm, I'm just, I'm just the, the maidservant of the Lord. I'm the lowest servant in the house, and I'll, I'll, whatever you call me to do, God, I will do it. We share in his sufferings. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And so in some gospel translations, he says, take up his cross daily. And he says, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peter said this, he said, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. So Mary is a wonderful example to us of what a sacrificial servant looks like. What sacrificial service looks like, Mary models that. Now you might ask the question, well gosh, what did, what did she really sacrifice? Well, back up to verse 27. And see there that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding in this day. It started when you were about two or three years of age, and you would enter into an engagement. Not a lot of romance in the deal. The fathers would get together, and they would say, hey, you know what, let's make an alliance, and my, my son's going to marry your daughter, and you would be engaged. Your spouse was chosen for you. And so, again, happens when you're about two or three. So you grow up knowing who you're engaged to. And then when you're about 14 or 15, which is the age that Mary would have been here, then you enter into a betrothal. This is a formal ceremony. And in this ceremony, mutual promises are made. The marriage is not consummated at that point. That doesn't happen for a year later. But this, there's this formal uh, betrothal that takes place. And... <clears throat> in this betrothal, it was a binding commitment. It literally required, if you were going to get out of having been betrothed but not yet going through the marriage ceremony, you still had to go through a divorce. That's how binding this was. And, and then, about a year later, after betrothal, would come uh, the marriage, and this is when the bridegroom came for his bride at an unexpected time. Now, being betrothed, Mary was under the binding obligation of faithfulness to Joseph, which means the penalty, if she was found unfaithful, would be being stoned to death. That would be the penalty. So, so this tells us what's required of Mary here. When this angel shows up with this news, it carries with it enormous implications for Mary. And she's well aware of that. And by the way, it raises a question, did Mary have a choice in this or not? Did she have a choice? Because, you know, ladies, put yourself in Mary's shoes, you know. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, I got plans. Like, I'm, I'm betrothed to Joseph, I'm getting married, how can I say yes to him and yes to God at the same time? That's got to be what's cooking in her head. It's a big deal. So did she have a choice in the matter, yes or no? And the answer is yes and no. It's yes and no. See, Mary was a woman of faith, and she, you need to understand, said yes to God a long time before this. Mary had already said yes to God. She knew the Lord. She knew His Word. She believed God by faith, and she had submitted her life to His will. And so when God calls her, she's long before settled this issue of lordship. She's already said yes to God. I belong to you, God. Now, by the way, we see this clearly reflected in this whole thing that goes down with Gabriel and what follows from it. See, because when Gabriel appeared to her in verse 31, and he says, you will conceive in your womb and you'll bring forth a son, she knew exactly, biblically, what he was talking about. She's a woman of the word. She, she knew that the angel was quoting from Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
When Gabriel, in the very next verse, verse 32, says that God will give him, he'll give Jesus, the throne of his father David, she knew that he was talking about the Messiah that was promised to David in 2 Samuel. And as we continue, what we're going to see in Mary's life is that the scriptures were prominently written in her heart and and there in her mind, and they governed her life and the course that she took. Verse 39, as we continue, it says, Now Mary arose in those days, and she went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. What's she doing? Very next verse. And she entered the house of Zacharias, and she greeted Elizabeth. Now, this, this is in my notes, but here's what I would say is that this is a really important thing. She's just received a huge bit of news that she's got to process. And in the news, what did the angel tell her? He says, hey, look, guess what? Uh, this has already gone down. Same thing happened to your cousin Elizabeth, and she's pregnant with child. And so what does Mary do? She's like, I got to process through all of this stuff, and the only person right now who can understand me is Elizabeth. She's gone through the exact same thing. And, I, and I, this, I think it just underscores for us that we as the body of Christ, we need each other. And this is why I think it's so important that we share our testimony with one another because people are going through stuff that you have no idea. But man, when you share your testimony, somebody goes, I'm going through that very thing. And what happens is that they'll, they'll ring you up. They'll call you up and say, man, we got to get together. i got to talk. And, and, and I think that's wonderful. We're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So here we go. Mary rises. She goes to... to this city in Judah, which would have been about 80 to 100 miles. She really wanted to talk to her cousin. And so she enters uh, the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. In verse 41, it had happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, her baby was also filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember back in verse 15 that Gabriel said, you're going to have a baby and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from your womb. So the baby's filled with her womb. John the Baptist there leaps in her womb. And then verse 42, she spoke out with a loud voice and she said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed For there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Basically, what she's doing, what she's linking here, what she's reaffirming in Mary's life is that there is this this active role that Mary's faith is playing in the fulfillment of God's plans. And so she's commending her for that, encouraging her in that. Now what happens, Mary breaks out in song. She says... Mary said, my soul magnifies uh, the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. By the way, I think that's a great memory verse right there. That's that's a verse to, to just hang your hat on. He who is mighty has done great things for you. Mary's not alone here. He's done great things for us, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty, and he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever." Now, I was reading a commentary by Charles Spurgeon, and he was talking about this, and he was marveling over the fact that, that none of these promises have come to pass yet to Mary. And she's rejoicing as though it has, and he's chastising men in his church as he's preaching. Basically, he goes, some of you can't even rejoice in promises that have been fulfilled. And here, this, this woman is rejoicing in promises that haven't even been fulfilled yet. She's singing God praises. Verse 56 says, Mary remained with her with Elizabeth, that is, about three months, and then returned to her house. So probably she was six months along, three months, that would be delivery day. She probably stayed with her until John the Baptist was born. Now, here she starts off 
with their song saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. And, and this song is often called the Magnificent from the Latin translation of the first several words there of her song. And her song, if you compare it, it resembles Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Remember when Hannah desperately wanted a baby? And, and then God, you know, she prayed and God gave her, the, you know, Samuel. And, and so it resembles that song. But also, as you read the words of Mary, and here's my point. I'm going somewhere with this. That for Mary, in this song of praise that she's singing, there's about 12 references in there to Old Testament scriptures. And the lesson for us, this tells us that the scriptures were prominently on Mary's heart and that they governed her life. Chuck Smith, Smith said this. He said, when God wants to work in us and through us, it's helpful to have his word in our hearts and minds to both receive it and to glorify God through it because God's word puts everything in its proper context. So important here. And so here's the result. Mary's faith firmly established in God as both her Savior and her Lord is what uniquely qualified her to say yes to God. Because she had said yes to God, because she placed her faith in God, and because she's hidden God's word in her heart, when God calls her to do this thing, of course the answer is yes. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Jesus said this, speaking of lordship, he said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart, he brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings, up, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then he says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? If I can paraphrase that, it's like, look, you're, you're content to have me as Savior, but, but you just want the spare tire in the trunk that's going to help you out when you get a flat tire. You, you just, you're not looking for somebody to surrender your life to. You're just looking for somebody that's, that's going to give you all the goodies. It's going to be that, that fairy tale God genie in a bottle that gives you your three wishes. This is the attitude here. He says in verse 47, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Listen, here's the point. It's not a question of if the trial is going to come in your life. It's when. It's not a question of if, it's when. And when God permits, or in fact when God prescribes something that you need to go for, that, is going to, that you need to do or that you need to go through, that's going to require real sacrifice, are you going to yield to his lordship? That's the question. Is he your spare tire genie in a bottle God, or is he the lord of your life? The answer for Mary here is he's both. He's both. She says in verse 47, my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. And she says in verse 36, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. He is both Lord and Savior. By the way, just real quickly, this contradicts her saying there in verse 47 that my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That contradicts another Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Because the, the Immaculate Conception, this doctrine of the Catholic Church, maintains that Mary was free from sin. Well, if, if she was free from sin, then why does she call Jesus her Savior? Because only somebody who needs a Savior, who's guilty of sin, needs a Savior. Mary, with her own lips, is confessing, I'm a sinner, by nature and by choice, because everybody is sin. We all got a belly button, we all got a sin nature, you know? And so, Mary's not to be worshipped, she's not to be deified, she's not to be prayed to, but she is to be commended for her response to God, because it was a submitted acquiescence to His will. She says, behold, I'm the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. So she's a woman of faith, 
She knows the Lord. She knows his word. She submitted to his will. And when God called upon her, hey, the yes has long since been decided because she's, because she's committed to the Lord. She's, she's long since settled lordship in her life. Here's my question. Have you? Have you settled lordship in your life? Because here's what I know. Sometimes God prescribes for us a very tough road as his children. Sometimes God will prescribe for you things that you never would have chosen for yourself. Because as his child, you belong to him. The Bible says you've been bought with a price. Precious blood of Jesus, therefore we are to glorify God in our bodies, which are the Lord's. See, God owns you. Now, he wants the best for you, but in wanting the best for you, sometimes he will prescribe for you, he'll prescribe for me a road that, frankly, can be hideous. Think about Job. Job is, is this righteous man, and God's bragging about him to Satan. He goes, check out Job, man. He's killing it. And here's what Satan says in response. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so what does God do? God goes, fine, have at him. Take him through the ringer. Right? And, and so all of us read this, and we say, God, please don't ever say that of me. Hey, Satan, have you checked out Ted, you know? <clears throat> but, but God allows him to go through the ringer. Why did God allow Job to go through the ringer? Job had no idea. He had no idea. Listen, it got so bad for Job that his wife finally said to him, he's, he's covered in boils, he's taken broken pot shards to scrape the boils of his skin, and as he's doing it, his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Like, well, thank you for the support and the encouragement there, wife. And listen to his response to her. He says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? He says, look, you, you got to accept, you're happy to accept the good stuff from God, but what if God wants to prescribe some bad stuff for your life? You're not going to accept that too? Because he's God, Right? And, and this is the comment, and it says in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This, these are the comments, the attitude, the heart and the mind of a guy who's long since settled lordship. It's not about the stuff. It's not about going, oh my gosh, God allowed me to go through that. Well, now I'm mad at God. Now I'm not going to trust God. No, he's like, hey, we take the good, we take the bad. Here's what Job did know. He says, for I know... That my Redeemer lives. Now, by the way, this is, this is in Job 19. As he's saying this, he's in the middle of his trial. They, there's lots of chapters after this. He doesn't know that there's lots of chapters coming still of suffering, still of his friends tormenting him, and so on. But here's what he knows. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. You see, Job had said yes to God. And, and so he's like, I belong to him. Whether I abound, whether I base, whether it's good, whether it's bad, boils or healthy, whatever, I belong to him. I'll worship him, I'll trust him. Incredible faith. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said this. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And here's what that means. That means sometimes God is going to require you to go through things that you don't understand. And sometimes, listen, he'll require things of us that seem overwhelming. And right now, Mary is at one of those intersections of faith in her life. Again, under the law, she could get killed for this. At the very least, she could be scorned and ostracized and outcast. And in fact, she was. F.B. Meyer said this. He says, it was inevitable that clouds would gather around her character, speaking of Mary. And indeed, they did. 
See, while it didn't cost Mary her life, it did cost her dearly. And we see throughout the, the Gospels, we see clues about what it cost Mary to say yes to God. The Talmud recorded that Jesus was the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary. That was the official record. He's the illegitimate son. In John's gospel, we have a depiction there. I think it's in John 21, but I'm not sure that's probably too late. But anyway, John, he's arguing with with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees basically retort. They come back to Jesus. They're like, well, at least we weren't born from fornication. You know, just a dig on his mom. When they stayed in Bethlehem so famously, Mary and Joseph, and we'll look at this in a couple of weeks, right? They go into Bethlehem. Where do they end up staying? They end up staying in some barn, some stable. Why did they have to go to Bethlehem in the first place? Because that was Joseph's hometown. So the implications there are when they went there and his wife so pregnant she's about ready to give birth, Joseph's family in his hometown said, well, he ain't staying with us, fornicators. Right? So, so there was a cost to her saying yes. I love this observation. Listen, by faith, Mary submitted to be identified with sinners so that the purpose of God would be fulfilled. Exactly what Jesus did, right? He came down. He was identified as a sinner, had the sins of the world placed upon him so that God's purpose is to redeem us and be fulfilled. My point is that Mary's yes cost her dearly. But she said yes long before the specific thing about, the, about bearing this child. She said yes to God. She surrendered to God long before this. So now she's faced with this, and what's her response? Let it be to me according to your word. Can you say that? Can you say that? Listen, maybe you've been there, and let me just tell you this. If you haven't been there you're going to be there. It's like motorcycle riders, two types. Those that have been down, those that are going down. And, and here's the thing with God. God will ask us to do something, to go through something that will be overwhelming, something we never would have chosen for ourselves. He will. He's either done it in your life and you are nodding your head going, I've been there, I've been through that. Or you will be there. He's asked something overwhelming from you. Your job, he's asked for your health, he's asked for your finances, he's asked for something costly in your life, and maybe you don't know the reason why, but you have to know the who that's asked it. The lordship issue has to be settled. Now, I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Check out this three-minute video real quick.
You know, we've been praying for Alex, right? And just devastating from the very beginning that's going down. And, you know, he says, if he can accept that, you know, then, you know, we can, I can accept anything kind of thing. And uh, let me tell you, Alex isn't getting there lightly. Like, there's a lot for a 16-year-old to absorb, you know. And what we're talking about here is that it's the road that God prescribes for us, it's, it's not all puppy dogs and butterflies all the time. You know, sometimes he, he prescribes a difficult road, and the question that we got we to gotta settle, we got to answer in our hearts, and when you don't know the why, you got to know the who. And, and you got to be able to say, look, he's my Savior, but is he my Lord? And I ask you to keep Alex in, in prayer because, you know, for a kid to lose, anybody, to, I'm a 53-year-old man. If I had to lose my leg, I, it, 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 it's tough. He's a 16-year-old kid. And, and he's still processing through this. He's, he's trying, he's being brave. He's trying to trust the Lord through it. But we got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? And, it, and, it, and it's, it's just those things, man, we got to work through. we got to press through. His faith in God at 16 is something some men will never have. A faith that says, let it be to me according to your word. That's, that's the get here, guys. We see in Mary, you know, we, we hear the story, but man, the faith to say, let it be to me according to your word. Look, if you've said yes to God, you belong to him. And I want to encourage you, the dark days, the sunshiny days, everywhere in between, that needs to be our heart's attitude, amen? Let it be to me, Lord, according to your word.